Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, producer Jonah Primo here, and welcome to Principle of Charity, where we inject curiosity and generosity back into our conversations on big social issues. So just a quick update for everyone. This is the end of season four, and we'll be taking a few weeks off releases. But we have some exciting announcements and big things in store for Season 5, so we'll talk more to that in the next show after the season break. This is Part 2 of our conversation on whether or not AI can create art. Part 1, where Emil really teases out the topic, was released last week, so that'll provide the context for today's recording, which is on the couch with Lloyd, and he's going to throw the guests curveballs and unfiltered questions. As always, if you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Here is On The Couch. Thank you, Ahmed and Michael. That was a phenomenal conversation with Emil. I want to go to the principle of charity now and focus on that and start really, as we often do in this segment, with the alternative view and trying to get you to articulate the alternative view and the strongest part of it. And so, Michael, I'll start with you, maybe highlight the top two or three arguments in favor of the idea that an AI system can create great artwork. I think the first point that would come to mind is is the idea of, of technical proficiency. So I, I wonder if it's helpful to think in terms of the forger, right? The forger who is able to to copy the great artist to such a degree that the human, uh, the ordinary human, and maybe even many experts cannot quite distinguish uh, the two pieces, right? So can can AI generate uh, a an image that would be almost impossible to distinguish from? Uh, something that was created by someone we we deem as a great artist, right, uh, of, of history past. I'm uh, hard pressed to say that it would be impossible for AI to achieve that level of technical proficiency. And so, if if that is the measure by which we think of great art, then uh, I, I think there's a sense in which perhaps then we might say yes, it 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 achieves that. It, can, it, it is possible for it to achieve uh, that level of technical proficiency if it figures out hands, for example, or whatever. And I, I am taken by the notion of, of AI as, an, as, a, as a tool, right? That it can become a genuine partner in the work of human creativity. I, I'm absolutely open to the possibility uh, that it could serve that role. I, I don't think of myself as an artist, right? So I would want to be open to the, to the subjective experience of artists who, who genuinely feel that the AI has become uh, not a, a substitute for their creative work, uh, and not someone who merely they, that they merely sort of goad into generating something that we might call a, whether we call it an image or art, but that actually becomes part of the artist's subjective experience. It, it works alongside the artist, with the artist, in, in subjection to the artist's 
in, intention and will, or maybe elicits elements that were latent in, in the artist mm, as mm. they seek to generate some new work of art. So I think in those two ways, uh, I'd certainly be open to possibilities. Wonderful. Thank you, Michael. I mean, let's go to you. What are the two or three best arguments to support the view that no AI system could ever create a true piece of art? My argument is that art is created by human for humans, and AI will always be a tool in the process, no matter how you use it. There's always going to be a human behind the loop, um, in, in the loop, um, behind the scene. Whoever program it, whoever uh, feed it the data, whoever put the prompt, whoever mm-hmm. uh, train it, uh, there is always a human who frame the question. And AI is just uh, a creative tool. It's a newer kind of tool that is creative, but it's working for the artist to create art. Uh, art is only created by human because there is a human who decide what to say, what to do. Mm-hmm. Michael, I'm going to stay still with the alternative view in your conversation with Emil, a lot of and a lot of your work is about connection. What would be the two or three strongest arguments that AI is enabling human connection? The way I tend to think about some of these issues, and, and not just raised by AI, but by other tools that mediate human relationships, right? There's always this question of the degree to which we can, the degree to which the the, the tool has a bent, uh, it has a tendency, right? It inclines us in certain ways. Uh, it readily opens certain doors and not others. And so that if we go with the grain of the affordances of the tool, uh, we we will tend in a certain direction. That's that's one mm-hmm. side of it. The other side of it is the degree to which the the, the creative individual can use a tool against its grain and elicit from it uh, maybe possibilities that were were not what we might think of as its default settings, right? Mm. That when tools come sort of preloaded with certain affordances or certain literal default settings in terms of you know software or digital tools, uh, there are ethical implications involved, right? In the way that it, it will incline the user who may be less interested in trying to achieve some measure of independence from those from those settings and right how does ai enable human connection i suppose is right. the alternative view to you in various fields in various cases there's that tension where it is possible that that a tool can foster a kind of human connection um, and maybe that requires a willingness to explore uh, how we might use it against the grain, against yeah. its, its its grain, you know. So uh, I think what I don't want to eliminate is simply the possibility that that, that humans will connect with one another under all sorts of circumstances. Uh, and, and it's, you know, often in circumstances where every, the, the deck is stacked against the possibility of human connection and nonetheless yeah. uh, people will find each other, right? Okay. Um, now, if you're asking me, are there tools that are explicitly designed for that in ways that um, you know I think are, are wholly benign? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I think I would want to think about that, yeah. Thank you. I mean, let me throw the alternative to you, meaning what would be the one or two strong arguments that you could posit that AI is destroying human connection? Yeah, I'll give you argument both uh, for destroying and enhancing human connection. Let's start by enhancing human connection first. Um, um, 
AI make it possible for any person uh, to generate an image by writing a simple prompt now. And I see it as a way to um, 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 make human express their creativity um, in an easy way. You don't have to be talented in drawing or painting to make an image like that. And then you post this image to, for example, Instagram and and some people like it and, and, and you're making connection here. You are really connecting to other through um, creation of images uh, that are made by AI and, and you are involved in the process. So that definitely enhance uh, human connections because it's uh, allowing me to express my, my creative uh, intentions in, a, in new ways uh, without having to be talented in, in, in art. Um, on the other hand, um, with all the issues now of copyrights uh, and these systems being trained on uh, images of artists um, without their consent, uh, artists will be very, very uh, reluctant to put their images online as before. Uh, and and uh, I, I see this as a, uh, something that will destroy human connections. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, artists will keep things behind closed door now more. Um, and um, um, that's definitely affects uh, the human experience of, of human creativity. Because now I, I'll be confronted every day with AI-generated images which will soon become stagnant and not really that interesting. And I'm looking for something new and that new things that I used to find out on art uh, websites where that artists post their web images into will become totally uh, deserted and become full of uh, images. And mm-hmm. I will not mm-hmm. find the human creativity anymore mm-hmm. that excites me every day. So that definitely destroyed the human connection. You've created and have founded AI centers. You're doing really novel research around AI. You've, you know, working on Beethoven's 10th Symphony. What are the chances, bearing in mind Immanuel Kant's definition of genius, meaning novel and influential, what do you, what do you think in, in 50, 80 years' time we're going to think of you as an artistic genius based on, on, on that matrix? What, what do you think the potential is? I think uh, it might be all forgotten because it's, it's very hard to uh, write history these, these days with uh, uh, the internet even being rewritten uh, with AI itself. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. you never know who will, uh, what will the internet uh, will say 10 years from now about uh, what we are discussing now. So it's very unpredictable. Uh, you know, that, that definition worries me a little, I have to say, um, because I understand the dimension of, you know, novel and and how pa- – there's some, a lot of agency in that. But to, to also articulate artistic genius as having to have influence seems to me – that there's very there's sometimes a lot less agency in influence. A lot of it is luck. I'm assuming that some people can be way too innovative, and as a result, because they're way too innovative, they miss the influential boat by a series of circumstances, or they're too far ahead of the game. Um, what, what's what's your view on that? Is that that influence is is largely somewhat luck, and sometimes that people who are too innovative, you know, don't get classified as artistic genius. Totally, I think uh, you are right. I mean, uh, there is actually a theory in psychology uh, um, related to that uh, by uh, Professor um, Martin Dale, who was uh, at University of Maine, and his theory uh, is really uh, say that um, artists 
all the time try to uh, push against habituation. You uh, look at the same artwork again and again, you got bored of it. You don't even notice it anymore if it's in your, in your wall. And artists really have to push to create something novel um, to, to, uh, to excite the, the, the viewer. However, if they, they generate something too novel, uh, people will not like it uh, because it will be uh, uh, negatively received. And that's exactly the example of uh, uh, Picasso, Ladies Avignon, when everybody hated that artwork. It's really too novel, too shocking. And shocking art in general is uh, in that part where it's really too shocking, too innovative, mm. and most audience doesn't like it. Mm. So where is uh, so basically, artists has to push against habituation, but in what's called least effort. How to, how to find a sweet spot between innovation, but not too much innovation. And and influence is really a question, a big question. What is influential? Because that's really a question of the viewer. Uh, is that art? Art that I'm looking at influence me and and inspire me and make me want to uh, copy it. You see it when you see some striking new style in art and everybody starts to copy it and 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 that's exactly what makes a great art. What makes that that a uh, uh, big part of it is a social context. What's happening in society is that art is telling me something that excites me and and inspire me that I want to copy it. It's something totally novel that click with me. It's very hard to, to define this aspect, uh, what is influential and what's not influential. Because artists, creative artists, all the time create novel things in all directions. But what clicks with the society as well, clicks with other artists is really uh, depending on the context. And what clicks in, in Australia, for example, will be different from what clicks in London or in, in Africa. Right. Again, all that depends on many, many aspects. So the influence is really uh, something that relates to the context and, yeah. and, and the social elements. And, and has some randomness to it. Totally, totally. I'm, I'm going I'm to stay with you, Ahmed, for a moment. Let's call that I've got a, a 1-800-Ahmed line, right, for personal counseling. I'm at, a, I'm at a dinner party or I'm in conversation, I'm having a beautiful brunch, and I hang out, I do hang out with a lot of artists, uh, whether they are actors, musicians, jugglers. I do hang out with them, and I, I find that they use the word creative. I'm a creative, they will say. We are, we are creatives. In fact, the, I think the, uh, the Australian, uh, one of the state governments has just set up a fund for the creative industry. And I am, find this word very problematic based in part on your definition. So let's assume I hear that word and I phone Ahmed and I say, Ahmed, listen, I'm very upset about these people. They seem to have colonized the word creative. There are lots of people who are creative in technology, in business, in science. What's going on here? Why, why, why do you think the artistic community has colonized this word? Mm, that's a very interesting uh, point. I think uh, the word creative is, is used for, for different meanings uh, by different people. And nowadays, it, it's people use it uh, in general to um, creating. Uh, if you are creating anything um, in terms of content, or in terms of, of videos, uh, music, visual art, uh, designs, uh, marketing material, uh, uh, illustration, uh, under all that, you, you call that creative, uh, a creative domain. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that what you're creating is really actually mm. creative um, by definition of novelty and uh, because it can create something that's uh, for consumption, basically, everyday consumption. You still are considered a creative person, uh, but uh, according to that definition, uh, but uh, this is not the creativity or discussion, discussing which is really creating something novel. Okay, Ahmed, I'm going to use 
that when I speak to uh, my creative friends, and so I don't alienate them, I'm just going to alienate you if you don't mind. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> From them. You don't, it's a transaction. You don't know them. So, so I'm going to get free price out. Michael, I want to come yeah. to you. You've written so much about culture. We've spoken on this podcast about tight cultures, loose cultures. Tight cultures tend to be quite conformist, quite emphasize homogeneity. The rules are clear. Mm -hmm. You know how to behave. Loose cultures tend to give the individual a lot more opportunity to express themselves, allow them to innovate, tend to be a little bit more conflictual. If I was thinking about art and I was putting this into a model, would it be that a, and let's just take country cultures for the moment, would it be that America, which tends to be a looser culture uh, than, say, Japan, uh, which is a tighter culture, am I likely to get more artistic talent in America rather than Japan, purely based on the fact that America is a looser culture and therefore emphasizes individual difference more? My my gut reaction is 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 no right because it would somehow invalidate uh, great traditions of Japanese art. Right? Uh, I I think you get more novelty, perhaps, right? And and I, you know, it's the novelty is one of the key words throughout our conversation tonight. Um, and what is the relationship? Um, you know, uh, for Kant, there is the the novel and the exemplary, right? You know, Kant reflects a, a very specific moment in human history, right, uh, where you do have a rise in the value of autonomy, right? That is obviously very central to Kant's project um, and. The, to self-determination, uh, we pass through, you know, the, the Romantic Age just shortly thereafter, where um, newness and novelty come to define, to some degree, what it means to be artistic. But those same those same values would would certainly not have defined uh, what is of artistic merit mm. in, in the in the medieval age, say, right? Um, and so, uh, I don't know. Whether then I want to say that because, for example, America may be a little looser and a little, uh, you know, more dy- dynamic is a word sometimes that is used, I think, mm-hmm. in this context, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that it necessarily generates um, more art. Uh, it may generate more novelty. Um, and, and by the same token, if we, you know, I, I am I am taken presently, you know, by the degree to which uh, art is mimesis, right? Art is... Uh, uh, an attempt to faithfully capture some truth about the world, uh, the degree to which you work within uh, a tradition over a long period of time, a cultural tradition, uh, and and that what is being generated is art. And because it lacks a high degree of novelty, it does not strike the members of that culture as, as somehow being less than artistic. Right. Um, there's an observation, I think it was by Ross Anderson um, at some point, where he he noted how when we look at uh, certain examples of, of art that we find in cave dwellings from uh, prehistoric times and, and how the, the, the renderings have a striking uniformity over a strikingly long period of time, right? So say 15,000 years. Uh, and... I think to um, to to modern ears, one might say, "Well, that was a, a striking lack of creativity, right? Because there was no novelty." And I would want to question that, right? I would want to question the degree to which 
the novelty must define the creative impulse, uh, the artistic impulse, uh, and whether or not we might not read that, as I think Anderson does in this observation, as being a culture that is, um, to some degree, rather pleased, right? Takes pleasure, satisfaction in what it is generating, so that we do not see it as a lack, uh, but as a kind of uh, virtue within the the context of the values of of that particular right. culture, right? Key theme in our podcast, the principle of charity is decency, understanding the other, tolerating the alternative view. I want to move to the subject of separating the art from the artist. Hmm. I mean, there's this sort of ever-going debate of whether we should separate the art from the artist. And some works of art, genius works of art, have been created by potentially some very ugly people. You know, there are great debates about uh, about whether we should consume the work of Picasso or Miles Davis uh, based on some of their history. Should we consume work from people who have been somewhat extremely hateful or sided with fascists or sided who anti-Semites or sided with Hitler or whatever? Should Should we consume their work? I um, have no problem with that. Um, I think they are who they are. Uh, we can study their uh, biography, their history. We can have our opinion about them, which obviously change over time depending on the cultural and historical moment. But when it comes to their uh, art, uh, um, it has to be taken into the context uh, of when it was created and what was the norms at the time and what's acceptable and what's not. And, and at the end, art, a uh, big part of it is... Um, um, the viewer experience. Uh, I experience the art in a in a museum or a wall, even without knowing who is the artist. I can still experience it and mm-hmm. can still enjoy it or not. Knowing who is the artist add to that. Knowing what the artist want to say and what's the artist history and what's background and personality add to that or take away from from that. But uh, it doesn't affect my my experience of the art itself. So. Um, um, I think it's it's very um, critical issue, uh, very hard to, to decide on. But uh, my mm-hmm. point is that uh, we should okay. look at the art independent of the people. Michael, how about you? Yeah, I, w- I would say it's a certainly a vexed question. Uh, I, I do not think the answer is simply no, uh, or that uh, you know such art should be preemptively stricken from our experience. Um, there's always a question of who's doing that. Um, I'll build on just Ahmed, your closing comments, right? That there is a there is a uh, a relationship we establish with a work of art if we're willing to attend to it uh, long enough, right? So I may uh, encounter a painting knowing nothing of its provenance, knowing nothing of its uh, uh, the artist who created it or their biography, and. And, and I, I think for one thing, I think artists themselves have uh, conflicting views on this. You know, some uh, saying that there ought to be no connection between the art and the art and, and the biography and the work of art. Ultimately, I think I find that less convincing. I think that the two um, are inextricably linked. And, and part of my argument with which we opened, you know, about art mediating two human beings, you know, connecting people, I think. Would predispose me to say it, it, it matters some it's something what the biography of that person may be right mm-hmm. so I th- I would say it complicates my relationship okay right so as I learn about 
whether it's the deeds or the philosophy or philosophy of the ideology, uh, it may begin to complicate my relationship um, to that work of art. Uh, and it may be that uh, one individual under the weight of their own moral conscience uh, may decide that uh, the work of art is something they want to move on from, uh, whatever initial relationship they mm. had. And I think, you know, the, the individual has a liberty of conscience mm. to, to make that decision without necessarily prescribing it for everyone else. Um, but I think it, it would be, an, as I as I do learn, as I seek to, you know, deepen my understanding of work of art that compels me to do that, uh, it would be inevitable that I might uh, encounter, you know, elements of the biography that, again, just simply complicate my relationship. And I, I, and I do wonder whether... The there there are various ways in which we can talk about somebody's bio, biography. Uh, you know, certain deeds done in uh, in their youth, uh, which are a result of their you know exuberance or lack of wisdom, or whether it's some deep seated ideology, right? Yeah, say yeah. a kind of fascist ideology that then inevitably must permeate the work, right, and must yeah. then become a point of yeah. Which I was I thinking much more around the extreme rather than you know uh, the imperfections of of an individual. Let me stay with the theme of the issue of humanity, humanitarianism. Uh, recently, Amnesty International were called out for using AI images in a report to depict protesters mm. in Colombia, and critics sort of indicated that Amnesty's credibility was undermined uh, as a news source because they had just created these images. And their argument would be, well, you know, in potentially is there was no real alternative. We couldn't get these images out, potentially images of refugees. What's your view? Uh, should human rights organizations, should they be allowed to create images, AI images, even if they're not real in order to get their message across? I think maybe the maybe even the prior question is the again on, on a sort of spectrum whether the rhetorically speaking right whether the images uh, slide towards manipulativeness right uh, or whether they honor the well, let's assume they the, do the let's assume yeah. for, 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 for in this case that they do yeah so if I'm counseling uh, one of these agencies I think my counsel would be to uh, to av- avoid the practice uh, you know for one example. Uh, I can imagine some portion of the target audience discovering that the images are in fact AI generated or that they're not representing something. I think you, you run the risk then of damaging your credibility to, mm. with, with some segment of the audience, mm. right? Mm. Um, that you, you are then seen to be um, misrepresenting uh, the situation uh, in ways that they, they then lack the, the capacity to trust you. And I think so much of, of, of you know, current uh, information ecosystem, it, the, the critical question is, is the establishment and sustenance of trust. Mm. Uh, and so I do, I do wonder if that would not be in that way counterproductive. Um, and then there's a question again of the data upon which these images are, are, are trained. And I think there's something to be said uh, for, you know, honoring the sub, the human subjects, of the images upon which uh, these new images are trained. And to me, I haven't thought very deeply about this, but it seems like that, that raises a, a, a strong hesitation on my part uh, about the use of such, such images. Ahmed, I want to go to you. In one of your TED Talks, um, you described yourself, did you describe yourself as a geek or a nerd? It was a geek, Lloyd. It was a, it was a geek. It, it was a geek? It was a geek? <laughs> I have to know uh, what is what's great about being a geek. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, I find myself enjoy 
coding, like the best thing I can um, do, um, uh, spend my day on is just coding, um, talking to machines, basically. I um, connect with early days of programming where um, uh, people uh, were talking about programming as an art. Like Donald Knuth uh, have this big book about uh, art of programming called Art of Programming. So uh, there is something artistic about uh, coding uh, that I myself enjoy uh, mm-hmm. uh, interacting with machines through coding and writing code and uh, spending lots of time doing that and finding ways to create art using coding myself, which is really, I finding uh, very interesting and very uh, amazing that I write code that can generate art that surprises me as a human. Um, so yes, and I, I, I definitely uh, call myself a geek. You, you love the logical and the analytical. Totally. We often play a game called net positive, net negative. Uh, I'll give you a statement if you're up for it. And all you need to say is net positive or net negative and with one <laughs> sentence about why. Michael, I'm going to start with you. Madam Tussaud. <laughs> Uh, is there an option for no opinion? <laughs> no. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, we love points of view. Right. Uh, I, I'll go with uh, uh, net net positive. Why not? Uh, I think there's a an, you know an established sort of tradition of, of experiencing such um, uh, displays that uh, maybe generate a certain playfulness or a certain uh, relationship to the past that uh, you know might be net positive. Okay. Ahmed, extroverts. <laughs> net negative. Why? Um, I'm an introvert myself, and I feel that the world we're living in now are dominated by extroverts uh, because of social media and, and influencer, so influencers and things like that. And that hurts uh, introvert people who uh, really have less chances mm. to express themselves and, mm. and be heard in this uh, today's mm. world. Mm. There really is a little bit of a war between the extroverts and the introverts, isn't there? We just don't call it out. Michael, GPS. Ooh, um, so just to be provocative, I'll say net, net negative. Uh, I think it's altered our relationship to place uh, in ways that uh, have alienated us from from place from geography from uh the the details and um uh history of the world around us Mm -hmm. okay thank you ahmed los angeles (laughs) (laughs) made positive i like it it's uh, i enjoy you do yeah it's uh it's a cultural uh place hollywood and uh uh, definitely affect our life. Uh, we might like it or not, but I would say it was the Michael Spotify. Uh, net negative on the principle that I say this as somebody who uses Spotify uh, to some degree. Net negative on on the principle that uh, we tend to develop superficial relationships to what we have an abundance of uh, and also uh, the economic models that seem not to benefit the artists of gen- that produce the music. Okay. Ahmed, cosmetic surgery. <laughs> well, well um, in terms of 
looking at the, what's discussing today about AI, I would say net negative because it promotes fake images of uh, people most of the time. Okay. Michael, last one. The assembly line, Fordism. Uh, Net negative, I suppose, in uh, the quality of the human experience, uh, you know, if we're looking merely at the availability of of stuff, then perhaps net net positive. But um, the the principles apply that have colonized other areas of human life are net negative if Mm. we apply the principles of efficiency. I mean, I have to ask you this question. When you built your model on you know, creative artists uh, or geniuses, what came up for the most underrated artists? What were the two or three most underrated artists uh, based on your AI model? Hmm, that's um, a good question. Um, it depends on, on uh, your experience in art. For example, when I did these models, I didn't know much about Kazimir Malevich, the Russian artist. And AI rated him one of the highest scoring creative artists of history. And that brought my attention to who is Kazimir Malevich and what he did, did he do. And AI um, rated his art like the black square and red square as very high score. Again, this is something that um, I didn't know much history about. But when I read about it and, and when I look at it, I find very, very interesting that art historian would agree uh, about things like red square and, and, and black square and things as very creative pieces of art. Um, most people, normal people would, would not. Um, but really that um, would make somebody like um, Kazimir Malevich, uh, uh, Mondrian, very underrated artist. Okay, thank you. Michael, last question for you and then we'll we'll sort of close it up. When you heard Ahmed talk about him being a geek and also potentially his view that extroverts are overrated, there is a lot about human connection, which is about reaching out, connecting. Do you think the geeks are undermining human connection? Do you think introverts are undermining human connection just by being quiet and staying in their homes? As an introvert, uh, self, self-acknowledged introvert, uh, I, I don't know. I think it's the context in which we might seek the connection, right? So I, I think what we have maybe is a uh, social structures that lean towards being conducive to extroverted human relationships hmm. and context in which introverts may struggle to find the appropriate context within which their their mode of human connectivity might might flourish. Um, you know, whether geeks are undermining, I think that's <laughs> too too broad a way of phrasing that question. I, I think many of the tools which maybe we might think of arising out of geek culture have had, uh, you know, uh, un, unhelpful effects for the way we relate uh, to one another or fail to relate to one another. Um, and, you know, I think many of, many of the ways in which, again, the default, the grain of contemporary digital technology is... Uh, basically to render us passive consumers who are um, isolated in our homes and receive our goods and services through a portal. And we never make that contact with the person. And, mm. and we've treated, hum- we've, we've come to perceive human connection as a, an inefficiency. 
mm. uh, that we're less likely to tolerate. Um, mm. So those are a couple of comments along those lines. And I think on that note, we are definitely going to close. Thank you so much. Michael and Ahmed, thank you so much. Uh, and uh, we look forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. That really goes a long way to helping others discover our conversations. You can also find Principle of Charity on social media, where we hope you'll join the discussion. See you soon.